They say all of Revelation is history. But we have no right to manipulate God's Word like that because we want to bring some anti-Semitic view against Israel, and we want to make the church the new Israel. We have no freedom to do that. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Perhaps you have heard about the 144,000 that are addressed in chapter 14 of the Revelation. But who exactly are part of this group of 144,000 that the Bible says were purchased from the earth and who have not been defiled with women? Well, we'll be looking at this group as Dr. Brogy begins a message today entitled, God's Army with the Lamb. Take God's Word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 14. You can see the title of this morning's message is God's Army with the Lamb. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And after the church has been removed, a seven-year period like the earth has never seen before will begin to unfold. And chapters 6 through 18 are really giving us a graphic picture of what that will look like. It is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that when I speak about it, you might think I would be exaggerating except for the fact that you can read the print on the page before you. In fact, in speaking of this coming day, Jesus said, for, since, for then there will be great tribulations such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Now, Jesus is truth incarnate. He never, ever, ever even exaggerated. And I've told you, when you think about this prophecy that he makes and what we read here in the Revelation, that when you consider all of the holocausts and famines and diseases and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all the atrocities that have been committed since the time of Adam and Eve, you take it and you put it all together, and it doesn't even begin to compare to the day that's before humanity. And so what we started back in chapter 6 all the way until we come to the 19th chapter is a time of unspeakable horror. Now, for the benefit of those with us for the first time, and because I want the rest of us to be able to think our way all the way through Revelation by the time we're done, because then it's a tool in your hand that will change your life and allow you to impact others, let's just set the context for the 14th chapter. Remember, God gave an outline for the book of Revelation. He doesn't do that for every book, but He did for this book. It's found in chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write the things which you have seen. That's the past. That's chapter 1 of the glorified Christ. Write the things that are. That's the present. That's the seven churches that he describes. And then the things which will take place after these things. That's the future. So chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 22, is the futuristic section of the Revelation. The things that will take place after these things. And he says it not once, but twice in chapter 4 in verse 1, signaling you that you are entering into new territory, that you are opening the after these things section of the book. And we saw there that open door, a picture of the church that has been raptured. And we find 24 elders, a representative number of the body of Christ. There are three visions of the throne room of God found in the Bible, in Isaiah, Daniel, and here in Revelation, and they're identical. 
with one exception. The one exception is here we find the 24 elders because the church has been caught up and they are there in the presence of the Lord. So beginning in chapter 6, as these judgments unfold, things become dark very, very fast. Now, to understand the revelation, you have to understand its structure. If you don't understand its architecture, it becomes very confusing. And we've seen that there are sealed, trumpet, and bold judgments that all come in, in series of seven. There is a series of septets so, septets, so to speak. And so, for example, the uh, trumpets, because they happen in consecutive order, cannot happen until the seals are finished. And so this first slide shows the seven seal judgments. Unlike the trumpets and the bold judgments that are visible all at once, the seal judgments, as we studied, can be seen only one at a time. The first four seals represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal represents all those saints who are martyred by a hateful world because they bow and worship Jesus. The sixth seal describes some cosmic disturbances, and there's a number of those all the way through the Revelation. And in, with each set of seven, between number six and seven, whether it's seal, trumpet, or bowls, there's some intervening space, not time, but space, to help us to see what has been happening. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, when these seal judgments are going on on the earth, what else is going on? Well, you don't have to wonder, because God tells us. And one of the things He tells us between the sixth and the seventh seal of, are of these 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we'll meet again today. Now, in the seventh seal, it's contained seven trumpets, as this next slide shows. And so between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is again a space of time, chapters 10 through 14. Not time in terms of uh, literal time, but times in terms of you, you're having a chance to catch your breath, to reflect. And in each parenthetical section, he's either looking back and describing what has been happening, or he's looking ahead to what is about to happen. Now, of course, when the seventh seal is open, it opens the trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, you can see all the bowls. So when the seventh seal is open, you can see the rest of the program. And as we saw, something happens in heaven that is astounding. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. People just have literally their breath taken away. And so now between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there is this pause of time where God gives some intervening chapters. The trumpets are found in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 10, we studied the angel in the little book. In chapter 11, we studied the two witnesses. And then in 11.15, you'd think the book would be about to end when he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And yet the second coming isn't recorded until you come to the 19th chapter. And so obviously between 11.15 and chapter 19, there's a lot of things that still yet to happen. And just like there was an intervening chapter between the 6th and 7th seal, there's intervening chapters between the 6th and 7th trumpet. That's chapters 10 to 14. Chapter 15, the shortest chapter in the whole book, is connected to the 16th chapter. It introduces to us the bold judgments. And of course, the trigger that brings the 30 minutes of 
silence in heaven is an event called the abomination of desolation. It happens right in the middle of this seven-year period. And so, again, you've got this space of time, and he is going to introduce us in these this double parenthesis of sorts, not only to what has been happening, but to some key players. And when we come to the 14th chapter, he's going to preview an event that is still in the future that will bring us all the way to the second coming. So here's the bowls of wrath in the next slide. Again, there are six bowls, and then there is a space of time that's recorded for us in chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. And when you read those verses, it takes you all the way to the Battle of Armageddon. So that's kind of the structure. And the intensity of these judgments increased, just like Jesus said. The Olivet Discourse perfectly parallels these three sets of seven. The first six seals, uh, really the seventh, are described in chapter 24 all the way to the abomination of desolation in verse 15 of Matthew 24. And when that event happens, that's when the trumpet and the seal judgments begin to take place. So here, putting it all together in this next slide, uh, just again so you have the big picture, the rapture takes place, uh, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy which is described by Daniel as seven years, described by John as seven years, is divided into two halves, as Jesus taught, as Paul taught. And it's two halves of three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days long. In the first half, Israel is protected by this false Christ, but then he commits something in that temple that we studied last time, where there's an act of idolatry and they know it's impossible for him to be the promised Messiah. And then he begins to uh, persecute Israel. So seven seals and the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls of wrath that ushers in the battle of Armageddon, concluding with Christ's return. Now that's the structure. That's where we are at. So we're in one of those intervening sections that is not only reviewing, but giving us a preview of things to come. With that said, let's read our text. Revelation chapter 14, beginning now in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of thunder. And the voice which I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So again, we are introduced to this group known as the 144,000. They are an army of evangelists, and there are three truths that I want us to observe so that we can make application today in our own lives. First, I want you to see that these 144,000 represent God's rescued army. They are a picture of a rescued army of evangelists. 
Again, verse 1 begins, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Here are these men, and notice they are with the Lamb. Now, we've seen it. It's an, it's an important principle that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so much of the revelation, if we will just keep reading, will interpret itself for us, sometimes a verse or a paragraph that follows, sometimes a chapter that follows. Or, since there's some 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses found in this book, it's understood through our knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, John is unique. He's the only writer in the New Testament who refers to the Lord Jesus as the Lamb. In fact, some 30 times in the book of Revelation, he calls the Lord Jesus the Lamb. When he quotes John the Baptist, that concept is uh, underscored for us, where on that day Jesus came down to the Jordan River, and John, the forerunner of the Messiah, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we're not surprised that he has given that title because it comes right from the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah said he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The 53rd chapter in Hebrew is in what we call a prophetic past tense, where if you wanted to underscore a truth as if it had already happened and is so certain to happen, you put it in a prophetic past. So all the way through that chapter, it's like it's already happened. And he's describing the coming of the Messiah who would not open his mouth. And so before Pilate, before Herod, he kept silent when it came to defending his innocence. Why? That he might not be found innocent that he would be condemned, that you and I could be found innocent. And so central to the revelation is this understanding of the Lamb and His cross. And at the heart of this text says, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. So you have 144,000 men with Jesus on Mount Zion. Now, wait a minute. The second coming doesn't happen till the 19th chapter. Remember, in each of these intervening chapters, he's either reviewing what has been taking place or introducing us to some key characters or, as in this case, giving us a preview as to what is going to happen. Jesus is going to come back to Mount Zion, and he will stand there with these 144,000 people. So with that said, it's important we understand what does he mean by Mount Zion. Now remember, the next great event is the rapture of the church. And it's a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made in John 14. If you remember, after Judas had left, the son of perdition, only the Antichrist and Judas are given the designation son of perdition. After he is gone and there's only believers present, Jesus reminds them, in my Father's house are many places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus first comes for us. He receives us to himself, that where he is, namely in heaven, 
we might be as well. We call that the catching up, the harpazo, the rapto in the Latin Bible, and so we speak of the rapture of the church. That is a distinctly different event from what takes place seven plus years later at the second coming. Now remember, every prophecy for the first coming was literally actually fulfilled. And for someone to spiritualize the prophecies for the second coming, they're defying what God did when he brought Jesus into the world the first time, and they're ignoring how the apostles and Jesus interpreted the Bible. In Zechariah 14, speaking of the return, the second coming of the Messiah, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the mountain, if you remember, he ascended to heaven from. He will come back and stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Has that ever happened? No. Is it going to happen? You better believe it. In fact, God says when he splits that mountain, he's going to walk through, Ezekiel said, the eastern gate. He's going to go on top of the temple mount, and he's going to judge those who survived the great tribulation period. And he will shortly then begin his reign on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we are commanded to pray. Your will be done on earth, literally, as it is to be done in heaven. Now, we want to see that today, but the fulfillment contextually of that prayer is when Jesus comes back and he literally rules and reigns for a thousand years. And so we'll learn here in chapters 14 and 15 that the apostle John is going to do something that he has already done. He is going to give us an overview and a preview. Here he is giving us a preview of things to come. Jesus is there on top of Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? It's used over 150 times in the Bible. So it's important when you hear the words Mount Zion, you know what God is referring to. And it's used in three principal ways, and the context determines what God is referring to. The word Zion is a Hebrew word that literally means fortification. The first time it's used is in 2 Samuel 5. Let me read it to you. It says, under God's command, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So God commanded David, go and conquer those Jebusites and take the city. Now, the Jebusites were wicked people. And God's patience had run out, and he commanded David to go and to conquer that people. Now, by the way, the city of David is used in the Bible to refer to two places. One, the place where David and the Lord Jesus would be born. The Scripture says that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, and that he would be born in a little place known as the house of bread, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so Bethlehem, where he is born, is called the city of David. And David, who conquers the Jebusite city, then calls Jerusalem the city of David. Now, Joseph Smith wasn't that bright a guy. He's a false prophet. He was as wicked and as moral as he could be. And a lot of the Mormons are now coming to realize that he actually had 44 wives, well-documented. In either case, because he didn't read the Scripture clearly, 
This guy who gave us the Book of Mormon, he said the angel Moroni, told him what to write through these magical spectacles. But in the book of Alma, the seventh chapter, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Again, he was confusing Bethlehem as the city of David and Jerusalem as the city of David. Jesus was not born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. Listen, the Bible and the Book of Mormon cannot both be right. One is in error. The other is true. Now, here's a picture of the city of David, what it would have looked like in David's day. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem, you discover that this whole section was found some years ago, and they've been excavating it. There are certain sections you can walk through. One of the sections that you can walk through is called a water shaft in which David brought his troops up through in order to do a surprise attack on the city of Jerusalem. The very water shaft that's described in Scripture, you can see when you go there. And so here was David, and he established this city. Uh, up above the city, north of the city, is what we call the Temple Mount today. Now, remember, here was uh, David. He built this city. And at one point, if you remember, he did something that God was displeased with. He counted the troops. And in counting the troops, he was assessing his own strength, and he was putting his confidence in the arm of the flesh instead of the arm of the Lord. And so if you remember, God sent a, a, a plague on the people. And so David repented and sought God, and God said, well, you can stop the plague if you will sacrifice to me. And so right above this picture in that mountainous zone is the threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna was a Jebusite. Not all the Jebusites were wicked. He was one Jebusite that came as a proselyte and believed in the God of Israel as the one true God. And so if you remember, he sacrificed there up on the threshing floor, a high place where you would throw the wheat and it would be separated in the wind. And it was the same place that Solomon later built the temple. How do I know? Second Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the fleshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And by the way, this is the same area in which Abraham took Isaac and offered him or attempted to offer him as a sacrifice before God. So Solomon builds the temple up on the top of that threshing floor. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 48, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so again in this picture, it's built on the south side of the city. If you go north, you find yourself up on top of Mount Zion, so to speak. Now, if you go there today, it will look more like this. Um, as the next picture shows, it's uh, the city of David. You can see the arrow. It's south of the Temple Mount platform. The wall that's here on the right side and all the way down to the far right, lined up with the area to the right of the Temple of the Dome, is the eastern gate. So when Messiah comes back, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split it in two. He's going to go through that eastern gate, and he'll go up on top of this temple mount. You say, how did it get so flat? It was mountainous, was it not, in Abraham's day? Yes, it was. But if you remember, 
there was a fellow by the name of King Herod, and through a series of arches and a lot of soil, he flattened the whole thing. And of course, today it's all concrete. Now, Herod didn't do the concrete. Concrete came into existence in 1824. You say, how do you know that? Because I had a friend who ran a concrete country company. He owned it, and he said that's when they invented it, in 1824. That's just a little trivia for you. In either case, it's totally flat today. And so that was the place, the threshing floor of Aruna, where David sacrificed. That was the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. That was the place where Solomon built the temple. And if you went even a little bit further north, and if you had a little GPS in your hand, the actual peak of Mount Moriah is a place today we call Golgotha, where Jesus died. This imagery is not by accident. It's all by providence where God was unfolding His plan. So here's the Lord Jesus. And by the way, this is an important piece of property. It's the most disputed 35 acres in the world. There's over a billion Muslims who want full control over this Temple Mount. So Mount Zion, when you see the word in the Bible, let the context determine. It's either referring to the city of Jerusalem as a whole, or sometimes it's referring to the whole land of Israel on a few occasions. Most often it's referring to this region we call the Temple Mount, or... It can also be used to refer to the heavenly Jerusalem in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So people, your loved ones who are in heaven today, they're in the new Jerusalem. They are in the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, I've told you there are some Christians who want to spiritualize the book of Revelation, with the exception of the 19th chapter where Jesus comes again, they say all of Revelation is history. But we have no right to manipulate God's Word like that because we want to bring some anti-Semitic view against Israel, and we want to make the church the new Israel. We have no freedom to do that. And the text doesn't allow us to do that. Here are these 144,000 who are with the Lamb, namely Jesus, and they are standing on top of Mount Zion. And the text says they heard a voice from heaven, which means, of course, they are on earth. Again, the prophet said, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He'll split it in two. And the Bible says when he does that, there'll be living water that will flow out of that ditch all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, if you go to the Dead Sea, it's the deadest body of water in the world. There's not the smallest microcosm of life in it. Nothing lives in it. And if you remember, when God rained fire and brimstone on those five cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah, they all were along the Dead Sea. And no doubt when rain and floods and all of that came over what God brought down, and that sulfur into the Dead Sea, that's what killed it. In either case, this is a real place that the Lamb is standing on. Tomorrow, we'll look at more details about the Lamb's return to Mount Zion and Jesus' accompanying army of 144,000. The book of Revelation can be a bit challenging to fully understand. That's why we encourage you to take advantage of the ability to listen again to all of the messages in this series using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
Or if you're browsing on a laptop or a desktop, just navigate to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD of any of our studies by calling 877-787-7478. And for today's message, request program REV37. Search the Scriptures is committed to making disciples who accurately handle the Word of God. If you can help support this ministry, please call 877-787-7478 and ask about becoming a foundation partner. Or click the Give button on either our website or our Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow, Part 2 of God's Army with the Lamb. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.